It was a mixture of excitement and dread. One day, having moved abroad seemed like the best idea in the world. And the next day I would go, oh my God, what are you subjecting your children to, your husband, yourself? What is this going to do to us as a family, all of us as individuals? Welcome to a new episode and Expat Life in Unse podcast series. My guest today is Henriette Johnson. Henriette is a psychotherapist working here in Odense, Denmark, and she has been on the podcast before, talking about her clinic, The Good Expat Life. Today, Henriette is sharing her own experiences with living abroad and moving back home. My name is Kerstin Jövland, and here is Henriette Johnson. And I would like to ask Henriette, was expat life a part of your upbringing? Well, firstly, can I just say thank you for inviting me to take part in your podcast series. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, no, it wasn't. Um, I remember my parents at some stage telling me about my father having been offered a job in Switzerland. And I don't think I've been more than two at the time. And um, after having discussed it back and forth, they decided to turn it down. And I know that um, deep down, my parents always regretted not having tried it, but they thought it was too insecure with a toddler. Um, But I somehow always knew... I was going to have to take myself out of Denmark. Uh, Travelling has been a huge part of my upbringing. Um, My entire family going back generations have done extensive travelling. And I always knew that I was going to go somewhere. And I think deep down I always knew I was going to go to London because I've always felt that that was my spiritual... Well, not my spiritual home, but I always felt that was my home on a deeper level without me being able to explain to you why. So that's why you decided to go to England at some point? Well, after I did my high school education, I did traveling for two or three years before coming back to start uni. Mm. Um, And I didn't feel complete being in Denmark. I sort of felt the world is so big and it's out there just waiting for me to explore. And I was feeling quite restless, I suppose, is the right word. I didn't feel rooted in Denmark and I had a very strong sense that life could be different and life could be better if I went somewhere else. And then my husband at the time, so I've actually lived in England three times. So the first time around I was there for a year as an au pair, being quite young. And then later on, when I had two children, my husband got an offer to come to London to work for his company and we accepted that and we were there for two years and then for personal reasons we had to come back to Denmark but both of us felt that we were not quite done so after four years in Denmark where I did my teacher training we immediately upon graduation returned to England and we were there for eight years then and I remember coming back from our first stay there We were actually driving back, and this was prior to the tunnel between England and France, I think. Either way, we were sailing, and I remember standing on the deck of the ship. It was early morning, and the sun rose and shone on the cliffs at Dover, and I was crying my eyes out, and I cried all the way back to Denmark. It felt so wrong to leave that country behind. So I think part of me will always belong to England. 
I'm not able to explain it further, but perhaps something about being free, being free of expectations, not having to live up to a certain way of doing things. So I find that when I'm in Denmark, because I'm Danish, there's a certain way I should be, there's a certain way I should think and act. Uh, whereas when I was in London, I always had the excuse, so to say, that, well, I'm a foreigner, I can be a bit different. And it's not because I purposely seek to be different. There's just some freedom in it. And I was allowed to be me. I didn't have to live up to anyone's expectations. Um, and maybe that's the appeal of expert life to me. I don't know. I don't know. I think that makes sense a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, was your husband Danish? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Danish as me. I don't think he had the same urge to go as I did. I was very much the driving force behind it. Um, eventually, he actually ended up staying longer than I did. But I was definitely the driving force initially. When you decided to move there, like, so you said you were there many times. Yeah. So the longest period was eight years? Or? The longest period was eight years, yes. Yeah. And uh, how was life when you moved there? Well, if I focus on the eight-year period, um, we had three younger children going into primary school. They spoke no English whatsoever. So life was very much my husband going up to the city to work every day, me taking the kids to school, making myself available for school to ring me if they, there were any encounters or I needed to come and help them sort out. Um, my children were two different schools. Um, my middle child was at a Church of England school, which was quite different to the other school, which was a, a normal state school, so to speak. And the level of emotional support at the two schools were quite different. My two eldest children had been at school in Denmark prior to going, so they were used to the routine. But my youngest child, who was only five at the time, started in year one in the English schooling system and he couldn't even write his own name whereas children in his year group could read so he was far behind uh, so it took a lot of support and a lot of encouragement and a lot of time to proper settle them in in particular my youngest and quite often I was called into school to help them out so my life was sort of on a standby mode because on one hand I was quite keen to make a life for myself on the other hand I, I needed to make myself available and I wanted to make myself available for my children to help them so it was sort of this limbo state um, and it was a mixture of excitement and dread one day having moved abroad seemed like the best idea in the world and the next day I would go oh my god What are you subjecting your children to, your husband, yourself? What is this going to do to us as a family, all of us as individuals? So it, it was emotionally quite challenging. And it took a lot to keep us on an even keel emotionally. We've all learned things the hard way in England, things that have made us grow as people, uh, things that we would never have come into experience with or into touch with had we stayed in Denmark. But it was also hard. Um, it was lonely. My husband's company offered for us to put the children in a 
Norwegian school, actually. And my husband was quite keen to doing that because then our children could make themselves understood from day one and, and they could be understood. Sorry, that they could make themselves understood and they could understand what was going on around them. But I was quite hesitant because I thought if we put them into the Norwegian school, they will have the mixture of Norwegian and Danish, which I know for some is quite a challenge because the languages are quite similar and yet very different. And I also thought, why do they need to to learn Norwegian when we're actually in England? And I was quite worried that outside of school gates, they would be handicapped from a language perspective. So I put my foot down and I insisted we put them into the local schools. And boy, that was hard. I mean, for the first six months, they were not able to make themselves understood. But then gradually they picked up the language. And after six to nine months, they spat it out like there was no tomorrow. Uh, and then there was no going back from that. And they obviously grew up being completely bilingual. But it, it was a tough start, a really tough start. It was also, it was lonely. It was really lonely. Uh, if I if I think back at how it was like for me, it was a mixture of wanting to support my children, but also realising I needed to set up a life for myself. Um, and at times I was quite envious of my husband because I'm not trying to neglect how tough it can be to start up a new job and especially in a new work environment, a new culture, in a new language, in a new country, etc, etc. But back then, in my view, he had it all laid out for him. He had somewhere to turn up in the morning. He needed to be there for eight hours a day. There were people around him. He had things to do. He had a purpose. And though my main purpose was helping our children settling in, I, I I needed something for me and there was nothing uh, and that was really quite depressing for a very very long time and I had a dream that I was going to write a book I was going to do some painting I was going to do various crafts but the reality of it was I didn't have the energy because I was tired and I fell down I felt very very low and um, I went through a terrible phase of overeating. And I remember going to my GP. So how it works in England, if you are to register with a GP, you need to come in to have a health check. And I went and my GP asked me, so how are you doing? And, and I was putting it on my fine face. And I said, well, I'm absolutely fine. And I started crying. And then she was really quite good. She said, it doesn't sound as if you're fine. And I think it took someone to really care about me for me to realize that actually I wasn't fine. And I can see this is touching you. Yes, it is. Yes. I, I, yeah. I know it, how it is. <laughs> yes. I think before you've tried being an expat, you don't really know what it means to be lonely. I'm not trying to neglect how people feel, because people can feel lonely in their own family. I mean, I know I've done that at times. But it's just, it's loneliness on a different level. And you really start to, I mean, I got in touch with aspects of myself that I didn't even know was there. And that was really quite scary. And um, 
I whirled into this spiral of overeating, which meant I gained weight and I felt disgusting about myself. And I spent a lot of time on the couch watching stupid daytime telly, eating chocolate and biscuits. And the worse I felt about myself, the more I dropped into that mode. But that obviously was like a vicious circle because the lower I felt about myself, the more telly I watched, the more I ate, the, the worse I felt. And I just couldn't break out of that cycle. And I remember going back to my GPs and saying to her, you've got to help me. And initially she prescribed me psychotherapy. And whilst I was in therapy, I felt better. But I wasn't at the time able to take what I learned from therapy into my real life. So it took for me to dig really, really deep and to actually confront a childhood trauma that I didn't even know I had. You know, I had just repressed it for so many years for survival. But being in this new environment, not having any support of any kind, and feeling that really profound loneliness made me vulnerable. And I think all of my barriers, all of the all of my everyday defenses, which I've learned to put up throughout life, as we all do, to cope, they just broke down. And all of a sudden, things just started to emerge. And and that was really quite testing. That, that Those were really testing times. And um, I think it took me a good two to two and a half years to work through all of that. But then looking back, I mean, people have often said to me, Oh, you, you've got so much courage. And moving abroad takes courage, a lot of courage. And actually staying abroad takes even more courage. And I remember thinking, yes, I, I may have courage, but I'm also struggling. I was really struggling. And I was envious of my husband going into work every day. And, and some days I would be completely unreasonable. So if he rang me to let me know that he was coming home late... I would flip out, you know, and I would yell at him at the phone, you bloody well better come home now, I can't do this anymore. I was really pressed, not because I was busy, but I was pressed because I was lonely. Um, and I didn't have much adult contact. I mean, it was really quite hard to make friends at school. Um, my children went to the local school, and back then there were not many expats. And engaging with the locals was just as difficult as I imagine it is for expats in Denmark to engage with Danes because the English, like the Danes, were just closed. I mean, they were very polite and very friendly and, hello, how are you and how are you doing and would you like to have a coffee sometimes? And every time I thought, yes, I'm about to make a friend, but nothing ever came from it. And that was really quite hard. It took a lot of getting used to that, that this is just what people say and it took a lot of looking at myself is this is this me or is it just how, how people are um, so so spending all of that time on my own meant I became quite dependent on my husband for him to be there and that I imagine must have been a terrible strain on him, you know, not only did he have to bring home the bacon, he also had to make sure I was okay so that I could take care of our children, but also so that I was just okay. And that was quite 
that was quite strange and quite foreign to us because I used to be a very capable person. But it was like I'd lost part of myself. And it was it was like all of my coping strategies and all of my mechanisms and and everything I knew was no longer valid. So if I had encountered a problem in Denmark, I would knew exactly where to go to ask for help and how to solve things and and I would feel confident that things were, were going to be okay. I couldn't find that feeling whilst in England. Uh, it was literally like being bombarded back to the Stone Age because things are just done so differently. And even if you learn to speak a language perfectly and you begin to understand the culture, they're just all of these unspoken things which you don't know. And how can you? And you you don't quite understand the system and how the system is built and why it's built the way it is. And it just made me feel really out of sorts for a very long time. And then adding to that all of these personal issues that I, I had to confront meant I was just drifting. Um, I couldn't see land, so to speak, anywhere. I was just drifting in this big turmoil ocean for a very, very long time. But having had therapy really helped me to understand myself. Uh, it helped me deal with some very challenging baggage. But it also sort of gave me a new lease on life. It gave me hope. And it gave me a very strong sense of agenda in my own life. Almost to an extent I'd never felt before, even back in Denmark. And I remember people saying to me, because after I had dealt with my baggage, so to speak, I lost a lot of weight and I started exercising and I felt really energetic and positive and I gained a zest for life that I'd never experienced before. And I remember people saying to me, what are you on? I want something of that. And I thought, well, you don't want to go through what I've just been through because it was hell. But looking back, I also knew I had to go through it. And I don't think I could have dealt with my childhood issues had I been in Denmark because it was just too close to home. And maybe that was my driving factor for moving abroad that subconsciously I knew I had stuff to deal with. But I needed to take myself away from my childhood environment to do that. And... I remember my therapist saying to me when we ended, I remember her saying to me, your life is going to change rapidly over the next few years because now the real you is seeing a daylight and she hasn't seen the daylight before. So don't be surprised. But to me, it felt like I was sitting in front of a train and that train was just zooming out there so fast I couldn't control it. You know, I didn't know which direction that train was heading in and the speed was just vigorously fast. And so many things just changed. I mean, I had to leave my husband and that was a really tough decision to make. And going through divorce in another country was just... That was a nightmare. It was just a killer. Um... 
And now that I'm out the other side, I look back thinking, he must have gone through hell as well because he didn't actually want this. But at the time, I was so consumed with myself. I could only see what was right for me. Um, So divorcing in another country is really an element where you are, are confronted with different systems. So because we were married in Denmark, Denmark offered the opportunity for us to be divorced via Danish law. And I think that saved us a lot of heartache because it's much, much easier getting divorced in Denmark than in the UK. And luckily we agreed on how everything should be sorted. So it was quite, practically it was quite painless. Emotionally it was a completely different ball game, obviously. But setting up life as a single mum in England, I experienced things which, if I had wanted to make them up, I wouldn't have had the imagination for it. So the first thing to sort out was finding a place for me and the the kids to live. And I very soon realised that the very minute you say the word single mum, people think the worst of you. I experienced there was so much taboo and so much stigma around being a single mum in England. And I don't know if it was because of those TV documentaries that have been made about single mums on benefit in England, but they are being portrayed as lazy people lying about, not doing anything, destroying the council homes, having awfully behaved children, etc., etc. And it just gave this bad rep to single mums in general. And I remember calling around estate agents asking for flats or houses to rent. And the very moment they heard it was me and my kids, they just hung up. And obviously the lease on the house we were in were coming to a close. So I had to find somewhere to live. So eventually I did manage to find a place. What I started doing is I started to take myself in person to the agents so that they could experience me as a decent person. And I was working two jobs at the time, but I couldn't afford to pay the rent from my jobs. So I ended up finding a place on the condition that I paid up six months rent in advance and I did so because at the time I had some uh, money from my divorce but that just turned out to be the worst landlord you could ever imagine and I remember on two occasions being called into court because they hadn't paid their mortgage so even though I paid my rent on time every single time because not only did I have savings but when they ran out I could apply for housing benefits um, which was another stigma. It was not something I was proud of because, I don't know, that was just something. In Denmark, housing benefits are offered to people who rent because in Denmark you can deduct your interest rate on your mortgage against your income when you do your tax return. In England, you can't do that as far as I know. So being on housing benefits was really a bad thing in England, whereas here we all see it as a right. Um, but even though I paid my rent, my landlord didn't always pay their mortgage. And as a tenant, you haven't got the same rights in England as you do here. So twice I had to turn up in court arguing my case for why they shouldn't 
put the house up for auction because if they did so we would be evicted with I don't know if it was two weeks or four weeks notice but either way I knew it was going to be virtually impossible to find another place to live because this time around I wouldn't be able to offer up six months rent because that money was not going to be available so I was in a real predicament there what am I going to do Luckily, it never came to that, but it, but just the thought of it was enough to induce anxiety in me. I also had the bailiff coming around quite a few times because they had taken out a loan against the house to buy a car or something for, and again, that hadn't fulfilled their obligations on that loan. I was quite lucky it was the same bailiff who came around, and he obviously got to know me, and he could see the issues it caused me. So I was uh, allowed to keep the fridge freezer, even though he, he was actually supposed to take it. And what is a bailiff? So a bailiff is the person who come around to take your telly or your fridge or something if you haven't paid what you're supposed to pay on loan. And my landlord was really bad with paying out his loans. Mm-hmm. So the bailiff and I got to know each other quite well. <laughs> he was a really decent guy, bless him, because he could see the issues it caused me that my landlord was not fulfilling his obligations. So he only took what was completely necessary for him to take. But all of this in combination with not being able to earn enough money myself. So I had a rent which is equivalent to 18,000 Danish kroner a month, plus gas and electricity, and most of the work I was doing. So I'll come back to that. But having trained as a teacher in Denmark, I couldn't teach mainstream education. I could only teach in private school settings, and only a few private schools offer Danish as a language in England. So the work I could do as a teacher was quite sporadic and quite random. Uh, So I retrained to become a personal trainer and I was working two jobs as a personal trainer. But some of that work was paid at £7 something, which is minimal wages in London. So if you do a math, I had to work an extensive number of hours to even just cover my rent. It was virtually impossible. So these factors meant that I suffered from enormous anxiety and I couldn't sleep. I never slept. So I would fall asleep okay, but I would wake up between two and three every morning, literally shivering from anxiety. I could see myself shivering, not knowing what the following day would be like, not knowing if I could pay my rent, not knowing if I could feed my children. It was just horrendous. And... I didn't quite understand it because it was not as if I was a lazy git just laying about doing nothing. I was working really hard and I was also studying to become a therapist. So it was really full on Uh, and anxiety just became my companion. Um, And never sleeping is just torturous. It turned me into this zombie, you know, not really knowing what was up and down, only surviving. So I was going through the emotions, but I was not in it. I actually think the only thing I was really in was my training to become a therapist. And at the time, I'd actually made some really, really good friends. So leaving my husband, starting working, starting a completely new life meant I had a different approach to things. And also having made peace with 
most of my childhood issues meant I was ready to go into the world again. And I'd made some really, really good female friends who really supported me through all of this. And I owe them big thank yous. And I remember some of them asking me, do you think this is the right time to study to become a psychotherapist? And I always replied, I think this is the best time because I need all of the support I can possibly have. And the course was extremely challenging. So we were being taken through the ringer personally again and again and again. Every theory we learned should be applied to ourselves and our own history and our own way of being in the world. And that was really hard. But there was also a lot of love and compassion and empathy and care. And I'm not sure I could have gone through these years if I hadn't had that place to go to just be held. So it was a very turbulent time for me, a very, very turbulent time and very anxiety-filled time. Not depressive. That was put behind me due to all the therapy I'd done and everything I had confronted from my childhood. But anxiety. And I'll never forget that that feeling of almost being occupied by somebody else inside me and that somebody else being anxiety. And it felt like there was someone sitting inside of me, pressing against my skin from the inside. You know, someone wanting to break free. And I was trying to compose myself. I was really working hard to keeping it together. But not sleeping was just not doing me any favours. And and I actually ended up being diagnosed with adrenal fatigue. That was how tired I was. And I remember suffering a minor breakdown, which manifested in me suffering from severe back issues to the extent where I had a few weeks I could hardly move. And I was at work and my manager pulled me aside and he said, you need to go home and you need to stay at home till you're feeling better. So I went home, stayed at home for two weeks, had a holiday, came back to work. And I don't know what I was thinking, but that was my, you know, that was my ethos. I just need to soldier on. I need to work through this. And my manager pulled me aside again and he said, this is not what I meant. I don't care if I don't see you for six months. I don't want to see you again till you're feeling yourself, till you've got that useful spark to your eyes. And I remember going completely numb. And then he said, don't worry, I'm going to keep your job safe. It takes however long it takes, you're safe here. And that was really touching. I mean, he was such a good person. He really helped me at the time. So I went home and I laid on the couch for six weeks, staring into the ceiling. I did nothing for six weeks. I made sure my children went to school every day, but outside of that, I did nothing. And I remember my mum, bless her, she rang me every day, sometimes twice. I saw my therapist again. I saw her twice a week. And I remember my mum saying to me, you need to come home. You need to come home. You're going to ruin your life. You're well into ruining your own life by staying. And I remember thinking, but I can't leave without my children because the United Nations, I think it is, have composed something called the Hague Convention, which states that if a parent takes a child outside of what is called its habitual residency, 
without the other parent's permission, it's kidnapping. So I knew if I took my children back to Denmark without my ex-husband's permission, I would be accused of child adoption and the children would be returned to England and I would face criminal charges. And I had, on numerous occasions, said to my ex-husband, I want to talk about returning to Denmark. And every time he'd said that he didn't want to. But hearing my mum giving me permission to go home changed things around for me. I remember her saying, you've got so much in the bank with your children. They know that you fight really, really hard for them. and They're old enough to understand that if you stay in England, you're not going to live for long. And... You're not going to be the mum to your children that they deserve and that you would like to be. So she she sort of gave me permission to go home without my children. And even talking about it now, I can feel my body is tensing up. I can't say that I would have left if my ex-husband hadn't given me permission to take the children home. But I knew I had to change my life because I was at the stage where... I was actually feeling sorrow for having children because they prevented me from taking my own life. That's how bad I felt. I wasn't actively suicidal, but I knew that if I kept this up, I would probably become suicidal. And what was keeping me going was my children. Were my children. So I finished my counselling psychotherapy training and then I started looking into going back to Denmark and it was awful it was just awful um, I consulted Asil Hisato who very graciously gave me an hour of her time pro bono and she said that given we were never meant to be in England forever given I had given up my teaching career and taken care of my family And given I could prove that financially we would have a much more stable and secure life in Denmark. And the most prominent point, given my children wanted to relocate as well, if it came before a judge, they would most likely grant me permission to go home. So my two eldest children were very keen on going home, whereas my youngest one was on the fence And obviously, I mean, he was born in England the first time we were there and he he was by far the most English of us all. And and he had a really good life and he didn't know what to do. And I remember at some point saying to him, if you want to stay, I'll support that. I'll speak to dad and I'll make sure we see each other very often. I'll come over. I didn't want him to stay, obviously, but I also realized that if I forced him to come back home with me, he may feel resentful, you know, and and it could actually prevent him from gaining a good life in Denmark. So I thought that I had to set him free, I had to give him the choice, and he, he very quickly came back and said, no, I want to go with you. But that was hard because essentially they were not, they being the children, were not, only made to choose between their two countries they were also indirectly forced to choose between the two parents and that was just it was awful it was just awful for all five of us 
But I just couldn't. I couldn't stay any longer. And I remember my mum saying to me, you've always been able to make things happen. You've worked really, really hard at this. If it hasn't happened yet, maybe it's just not supposed to happen. I, I thought a lot about that, especially having regained that strong sense of agenda in my life. And I really feel I'd looked at every single aspect of setting up life in England, but financially I just couldn't cut it. I just couldn't. And there was a, a huge part of me which didn't want to leave because I, in many aspects I had a really good life. But I also realized I felt unsafe. And I didn't feel like myself. And along the way I'd made some choices which were very unlike my character to do. But it was literally like fighting one fire after the other. I was literally firefighting. You know, one fire put out, the next one put a lid, etc. And I was just... I felt lethargic. I had no energy. And quality of life became less and less and less good. But I had made some really good friends. And I'd been away from Denmark for a very long time and I didn't know what it would be like to come back. I also didn't know if I would be able to find work. I didn't know where to live. I couldn't buy a house because I had no money. So there were just a lot of ifs. And it it was literally the worst case of you know what you've got, you don't know what you'll gain if you change your life. But my mum's voice was ringing at the back of my head in a good way. You're ruining your life if you continue and you risk not being here for much longer being here as in actually being alive and I knew she was right and then I started the whole process negotiating with my ex-husband and thankfully after six months of negotiation we signed a contract allowing the children to go back to Denmark so we came back in June 15 and I remember our first night here. I slept for nine hours without waking up. That was the first time in many years. And I woke up thinking, wow, this is huge. I've actually had a full night's sleep. And and it was a completely different relocation or repatriation from the first time we came back to Denmark the first time as I said before I was crying my eyes out and I felt my life had ended not being able to be in England and I spent four years doing my teacher's training in Denmark thinking about England and all the things I was missing out on every single day this time around I haven't looked back not even once Um, the kids and I had six weeks in our new home, doing nothing. Our arrival coincided with the school summer holidays. So we were just pottering around, unpacking, you know, decorating our new home, sussing out where to buy milk. You know, all of these things that you experience when you embark on expat life, we now experience being in our own country. And when I say our own country, I'm very aware it was my country at the time. For the children, it was a holiday home. But... 
in a funny way, going back to your own country is actually more difficult than going out into the world. Because when you go out, you're excited and you're filled with this, well, excitement and, and joy and anticipation for all the new. When you come home, you look alike, you sound alike, and everyone looking at you and hearing you speak just assumes that you've lived your entire life in Denmark. But we didn't know where the supermarket was, you know, and it sounds silly, but all of these little things that you do on the backbone, we had to relearn how to do. And that was quite draining, it was quite taxing on all of us. And whilst doing that, I started working as a teacher. So luckily I found a teaching position which was at the school I'm at now, which is in part Danish and part international. So many of my international needs, so to speak, are being fulfilled at work. And that plays a huge role in me having successfully readjusted to life in Denmark. And my children have done amazingly well. Um, they struggle with the, the Danish schooling system, it being less academic than the UK one but also there being more noise, the teacher being less of an authority. Um, but they also gained a freedom they would never have had in the UK. So here they can cycle to everything, you know. And they do, you know, they're making the most of it. They're really taking advantage of that freedom. They have not only being able to cycle, but also it being safe to be out and about on your own. So very soon they had organized jobs for themselves, you know. They were socializing and they were thriving. And then academically being ahead of the game in most subjects meant that they had, they had the surplus energy to focus on Danish, which obviously they were lagging behind. In, but also setting up a good social life for themselves. So now that they're almost ready to flee the nest, I think that like me, they feel that we have now the best of both worlds. So we 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 have a good home. We have a a good, well-functioning everyday life. We feel safe. We no longer have financial struggles. And then we can go to England every now and then to see our friends and to just be in those locations that we miss. Yeah. yeah. Do you miss England? I don't miss my everyday life. Yeah. I don't miss the financial hardship and the nightmare of of not being able to find a place to live which felt safe. Uh, I do miss my friends a lot. But thankfully, I'm in contact with them and I see them when I come over some years I only come over once this year I've been there four times so right now it's quite strange because going back to England it kind of feels like walking onto a film set where nothing has changed but I no longer have a role in that film but at the moment it feels like I have the best of both worlds of both my countries and there's no doubt that England and London in particular will always have a special place in my heart. So even though I no longer live there, it's still part of me. And I think, I hope it will always be part of me. And every time I'm in London, I always cross the bridge between Waterloo Station and Embankment. 
And I always look, so that's a beautiful view over the city from that bridge. And I always look at it thinking, I should come here more often. And in many ways, it's been it's been one of the hardest experiences of my life, but it's also been the best in the sense that I had the courage to look at myself, I had the courage to face the issues I was carrying from childhood, some of which I didn't even know I had to face. But it's really given me a much richer, fuller life, and it's given me peace with who I am as a person. And today, I like to think that I lead a very rich life, not financially or materialistically, I have enough, but personally, I have a very rich, very full life. And I don't think I would ever have gotten to that stage had I not moved away from Denmark, had I not confronted myself on all the issues. I had all that baggage I was carrying. So seeing that I like my life so much today, I would go through it again for that if I had to. But I also think there's something there's something else about expat life which I wish everyone could experience because you start to look at yourself differently. And I'm not just talking about childhood issues here. You start to look at, at who you are as a person in a different light because all of your norms, all of your usual strategies, they just don't work in a culturally foreign setting so so you're forced to look at yourself and to me that's a really healthy process to go through and there's something very enriching in in really getting to know another culture in really having it under your skin so to speak and you start to realize well actually life can be led in so many different ways and none of them is necessarily the right one and it enables you to to embrace other people in a totally different way. And it enables you to be more interested in their experiences. How do they see the world? How do they react to certain things in the world? And it just broadens your horizon in a way that I think would benefit all of us as individuals, but also as a race. And... Um, I very often encourage my own children to go abroad. And I actually remember moving abroad initially, we had a lot of friends asking us, aren't you afraid your your kids are going to do the same? And now that my kids are embarking on adult life, yes, of course, I mean, I would be sad if they moved to the other end of the world because that would mean I wouldn't be able to see them as often as I would like to. But I would be happy for them if that's the right thing for them. And I, I would be happy that they have the courage to go out and embrace what's out there because there's a lot of wonderful people out there with a different background, a different skin colour, a different religion, a different culture. But we have got so much in common if we've got the courage to peel away those layers of prejudice. And to me, what we're scared of is the unknown. But if you take yourself out there, the unknown becomes known. And that means you're less scared. So in a way, I wish everyone was as privileged as I was to be able to go abroad for some time. It doesn't have to be eight, ten years. It could just be a year or two. But to take themselves out of their comfort zone, out of their daily rut, to see that life is different elsewhere, it also makes you much more appreciative 
of, of what you do have at home. So to me, it's really made me as a person. So even though it was torturous at times, and even though I, suff- I suffered from massive anxiety, and I, I never realised anxiety could be so debilitating, but it really is debilitating. And I would hate to go back to experiencing that. And I see people in my practice experiencing that, and it's just horrendous. But for me, it was something I had to take myself through to really realise who I am and to build up. Yes, I had the courage to move abroad, but I didn't at the time have the courage to be myself. But now that I've gone through all of that personal development, I have the courage to be me. And that's a gift. And I owe that to expat life. You know, I'm not sure I would have been where I am today had it not been for having had the courage to go abroad and facing all of those challenges. And I'm very much aware that we've only touched on a few practical challenges. It's been mostly my personal story. But for me, they are linked. Um, There was something safe about being away from home, something safe about being a foreigner, being able to be a bit different, that enabled me to look at myself and to confront what I had to confront in my life. Yeah. You have been listening to an interview with psychotherapist Henriette Johnson. Henriette has a clinic here in Odense called The Good Expat Life. Today, Henriette has shared her own experiences with living abroad and moving back home. If you would like to get in touch with Henriette, you can find her information on Facebook and on her website. Both of them are called The Good Expat Life. Henriette's contact information is also included in the show notes of this podcast. This is The Expat Life in Odense Podcast Series. My name is Kjersti Thank you for listening. Bye for now.